Welcome back to Burn the Haystack with Josh and Jesse. I'm Jesse. And I'm Josh. And this is a show all about saving the best and burning the rest. And today we are recording again from a new location in a boardroom it, this time. It's always changing. It's yeah. always changing. Just got to keep mixing it up. But we are very happy we are not alone today. We have a very special guest. Super excited to welcome Dr. Brendan Pratt to, <laughs> to the podcast. G'day, Jesse. G'day, Josh. Oh, man. I've been, I've, you know, I've been thinking about having you on the show for ages. And it's, and then Brendan, no, so Darren, we had your brother on the show. Mm-hmm. And then he mentioned, oh, you haven't mentioned, you haven't interviewed Brendan yet. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, you're completely right. How have we not? Anyway, so here we are. <laughs> so our, our New Year's resolutions apparently is going to be working through as many prats as we can. So <laughs> that's a great idea. I'll be interested to hear where it gets to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're all amazing. All got something interesting to say. So yeah, be a fun adventure. Yeah. Yeah. So Brendan, would you be able to just quickly introduce yourself for those of in the show who haven't uh, come across you before? I'm assuming that's going to be a very small subset of people, but for them nonetheless, who the heck are you, man? Who the heck am I? As you've just gathered, I've got brothers who are pastors. I've got three of my brothers are pastors. One's not pastor. He claims he's the only one left in the family. I've got a sister who's a school teacher out at Mountain View. So I grew up in Mildura. I'm married to Amanda, Amanda Buse. She didn't change her name when we got married. That's okay. And uh, so she's an <laughs> author. You've probably seen her name on things that around the place that she, she writes. I've got three boys, two of them are in uni now, both studying science. One of them is in high school. My big interest is reptiles. Love reptiles. Any chance I get, I'm playing with my, my reptiles. Yeah, that's probably what you need to know about me. Yeah, awesome. And, you know, while we're at it, quick shout out, Brendan's wife, Amanda Buse, the books she writes, The Hunter Chronicles, outstanding. The teenagers at school, church, they love them. So, you know, this isn't not sponsored but, or anything, but mm. just, if you have teenagers, hey, get on the Hunter Chronicles. It's so good. Yeah, kids love them. So anyway. Uh, just, I'm biased. Just want to I say. think they're good. Yeah, she's doing a great job. And I mean, she's written other stuff too. But anyway, that's, I just wanted to make a note of that because I had teenagers literally just talking to me about it yesterday. Wow. So there you go. Yeah. Very exciting times. I guess in your spare time when you're not busy doing stuff with reptiles and all that sort of other things, you do work for the church and you work at a, in a very interesting position. So, yeah, it's pastor to pastors. It's called ministerial secretary for AUC, but it's yeah, pastor to pastors for Australia. Pastors development and how pastors are going and what resources or what challenges pastors are facing, we can address that. That's, that's what I do for a job. And for, for extra fun, I did that PhD on consumerism, which is what we're chatting about today. Yeah. Yeah. Look. Consumerism is a super interesting topic. I'm excited to dive into it. But look, just before, I mean, I think there'd probably be some people who are interested in what is it? What does it look like to be a pastor to pastors? You know, just a quick snippet, you know, how long have you been doing it? And what's some of the interesting things you're seeing right now? Yeah, so doing this job for nine years now, I what we're we seeing now, I think the pastoral role is way more complex than it was 10 years ago. And and certainly 15, 20 years ago, they just the the various issues that pastors are working through, the various challenges that pastors are up against. And this is why I say to anyone, no, pray for your pastor because yeah, it's just a way more complex job than it used to be. I get excited about working with pastors 
because I really do think pastors have the opportunity to lead transformative communities. And I think if we're going to impact Australia for the kingdom, then pastors are really critical in that. That's why I get excited about the job I do. I get excited about seeing pastors grow and develop. One of the exciting things is the variety of pastors we've got across Australia. Now, I just see God using all kinds of people in all kinds of ways, all kinds of giftedness, and from many different backgrounds. Now, we've got ladies and gentlemen who are just amazing people, and I get to work with them. Mm. That's cool. You mentioned, I, I always kind of find this funny when people say, oh, yeah, I did a PhD or a doctorate for fun or, or whatever. It's such a casual thing. You did this how many years ago? I graduated during COVID. So 2021 submitted, graduated 2022. So it's only just a fairly recent thing. That took seven years to get it done. So yeah. been playing that game for a while. Eight years, yeah. actually, overall. Wow. That's, that's pretty significant. And what drew you to this topic, consumerism? What is it that drew you to wanting to study this and do this? That's a really good question because there's a, a few factors came together. And so first of all, there were a period of the period I was pastoring a church in New Zealand for 10 years and thoroughly enjoyed it, thoroughly loved it, had a lot of fun, was very oriented towards, this is the, the late 90s, early 2000s, very oriented towards the whole, at that stage, you know, people call it the Willow Creek seeker sensitive movement or whatever you want to call it, the church growth movement. And so you know, got, got quite excited about those sort of ideas, but there was always some niggling thing about it saying, hey, we're getting lots of people. And we were, we're getting lots of people and this is a huge generalization, but what are we doing with them? And so I always thought, you know, it, it, I look back now and I put a lot of my energy into a very consumer driven model of church, which is not entirely a bad thing, but it is problematic in that we didn't, for the most part, a lot of people, we didn't grow them beyond that consumerism. We were meeting their needs really well. It was all very targeted to a particular group. You know, it was a full program, was meeting their needs extremely well. But then beyond that, what was it doing? So that was always a niggling thing, thinking, what are we doing here? Beyond that, Greater Sydney, that was where my next job was, doing healthy churches. And so I was putting a whole lot of time into natural church development and uh, working with churches on their functional structures and working on their you know, gift-oriented ministry and all those NCD factors. But once again, um, now it kept coming up and it's often quoted. We go, oh, our lowest NCD score is loving relationships. So I was getting a little obsessed by this, going, if the church is one spot that's meant to be loving, why are we always scoring loving relationships? And it struck me one day, I was at an NCD event with a Baptist and Salvation Army and Uniting, we're all talking about NCD, and they're all scoring low on loving relationships. And so sometimes as Adventists, we beat ourselves up saying, oh, it's because of the way we bring them into the church, they're not loving, or it's because of this or because of that, or we're too head knowledge or whatever. You know what? They're all scoring low on loving relationships. And so that's when I thought there's something deeper going on here. And here we are tinkering in all these bits and playing this game, but there's something deeper going on with this. And so, you know, put a whole lot of effort into discipleship and for people who I work with in Greater Sydney at the time, you now we got obsessed going, hey, beyond all these structures and that, we've got to grow people as disciples. And so we wrote lots of disciple resources and no one ever read that just filled up cupboards in churches. And once again, it was like, we're still missing the point. And that's when I got a bit obsessed by some stuff I was reading about our culture and how, as Australians, we were all becoming less loving towards each other, whether you were church or unchurched. And so that's when I got a bit obsessed by what's the possibility that while we're tinkering with churches, there's a much, much bigger issue going on in our culture that is impacting our church. 
And what if that's the big challenge need to think through? And so that's when I was reading more and more, trying to find out more and more about what was going on. And I've always been attracted to research. I always like, you know, studying. And so that's where the topic grew out of is inklings that I was having that something just wasn't clicking, whether that was in my pastoral ministry, whether that was in what I was trying to do with healthy churches. And so then that's growing into what does consumerism mean for faith development? What's consumerism mean for the church? And how can the church be an agent to inform some of those consumer challenges? So I looked at the PhD looks at both ways. What's the consumerism doing to churches and what can churches do to address consumerism and inform our culture for a better outcome? Mm. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There is one thing before we get into like the, the the meat of that, which I think we need to you know give some good time to, but I just wanted to ask you about going back to your Auckland, New Zealand days. Yeah. And by the way, as Josh and I, we've both done ministry in New Zealand. Of course, people still talk about you, Brendan, in New Zealand. Oh, yeah. Whenever I went to your church that you were pastoring over there, people were like, ah, oh, yes. The Brendan Pratt days. Those were the glory <laughs> days of our church. Everything went, no, nah, I'll, I'll stop. You know what? I, I love New Zealand. I love working in that church. Absolutely love New Zealanders. I There's there's lots of things I look back on incredibly fondly about New Zealand. At the same time, I think there's some stuff that if I had the time again, would do differently because you know, when you talk about glory days, we did put a lot of people there. People were coming, but did we grow them as I wish we would have? As a generalization, many did, but did we grow them as I wish they would have? The answer would have to be no, because a lot of them now have disengaged. And I think we presented a really good product of church, but then it became a, just a life choice that, hey, there's a better product, this product, and we're competing against not other churches, just other life choices. And so people make other life choices. And I think we didn't grow people beyond themselves as much as I wish we could have. That's not to say that it didn't happen because it, there's some you know, lovely people and very good stories. And they're all lovely people. But I, if I look back now and said, what do I wish we'd I'd done differently is would have had a bigger focus on you sure you engage in church as a consumer and you have to have a consumer element to church. And so that bit I don't regret. I do regret that we didn't move people beyond that as much as I wish we could have or should have. And into the substance, modify the outside of the bucket so people can engage, but we didn't engage people in the substance that moves people beyond self. Yeah, and that's that's what I wanted to ask you about because, you know, when we were getting into our ministry in the early 2010 sort of thing, when we were going through college and, and all that sort of stuff, Josh and I, the benchmarks were to some degree Willow Creek, but that was sort of still a very 90s thing. But then you had Andy Stanley and North Point Church. You had the emerging Elevation Church, which is, of course, like a big titan in the evangelical world nowadays. When I was an early, like, you know, just in my internship, those were the churches that I was wanting to emulate. And I think to a certain degree, when young pastors are getting out into the workforce, when they're getting into ministry, a lot of them are looking at the big players to either copy or to aspire to. And they may not use the seeker sensitive formula anymore or like look to Willow Creek, but those are definitely the sort of the the giants upon which the modern day elevations and, you know, what have you are, are built upon. Could you 
talk us through just very briefly, and I know you've already touched on it. What was it that was driving that seeker sensitive movement? What was the aim? What was, and you've already touched on some of the regrets perhaps or where the system falls short, but I, I want to drill down on that a little bit before we get into consumerism because for so many young pastors, that's all they know and that's all they aspire to. And I, I think it's for all very noble reasons, by the way. You know, well, maybe it's not all. I shouldn't say that because sometimes people are in there because there is the possibility of making a name for themselves and whatnot. But I think if I looked at Bill Harvest, if I looked at Andy Stanley, if I looked at Noah McManus and some of those names that we quote, I would want to give them the best of motives. And I would certainly give the best of motives to lots of pastors who have poured their energy into that model. And it's not a problem pouring your energy into that. As I say, I love churches. I love big churches, little churches. I love dysfunctional churches. I love country churches. I love house churches. I just love churches. I think any time people get together to grow and serve, connect, share, worship, whether that's with thousands or whether that's with 10, I love it. Just love it. However, I do think there's some models of church that all models of church have upsides and downsides. And the model of church that I was very focused on is not a bad thing. It's just, it got so much focused on, we're going to meet your needs that, that you were doing that so much. And we're going to make this work for you that we neglected at times to think, what's it look like to grow people beyond that we're doing this for you. And instead we're living lives beyond ourselves and we're here to serve others rather than just simply consume a worship service or consume a program or consume you no know, whatever the product is that the church is giving. And so I think the church went into a consumer mode for noble reasons and for good reasons to try and reach culture. Otherwise you're disengaged from culture and you don't connect it with anybody. So at least that model at that period was connecting with people. It gave the opportunity to grow people and people did grow, but I think, at the same time, it got so consumer oriented towards here's the target market. You know, it was all faith brands. We, we presented as a faith brand. We talked about our brand. We talked about here's the brand of what it is. And there's upsides to that. Downsides is we presented as a commodity and then wondered why our church members engaged as consumers of the commodity. So we were responding, creating commodities for consumers to consume, but then wondering why they just consumed. And as I say, there's part of it that needs to be consumer-driven to engage people into that community. It's growing people beyond that 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 was the challenge and, and still is the challenge, is, is always the growing beyond. I guess I get a little bit intrigued by some of the digital discipleship models I see now, which are basically, I think, some iterations of the church growth movement in a different way. It's still target markets. It's still we've got to meet needs. We've got to find out what they're thinking and meet that need, and we've got to, and which is not entirely a bad thing. The challenge will once again be, what do you do to grow beyond simply engaging as a commodity? And so it's still the same challenge, whether it's church growth, whether it's digital discipleship, it's just the same challenge in different iterations. Mm. And I think in some ways, the digital discipleship stuff, a lot of what's happening is even a more distilled version of that because you're saying, okay, I'm going to I'm going to, you know, start a TikTok account or I'm going to be a YouTuber or a streamer or whatever. And it's very much, I'm the personality, I'm the person. Mm -hmm. And you, a lot of the time can disguise it as like, like I'm, I literally, Brennan, Josh, I was literally editing a TikTok video before we got on the call today that I'm going to post on the signs of the times TikTok account. Jesse Herford. 
TikToker, everyone. It's, yeah. And it's not a bad no. thing. Yeah. It's just, <laughs> yeah. it's not, it's not the end point. And sometimes you can yeah. start thinking that the end point is the engagement with your TikTok or the number of people sitting in your congregation. You can think that's the end point and you walk home going, Hey, good. We tick that box realizing that's just the outside of the bucket what's in the bucket really matters and often we don't get to do what's in the bucket because we're so busy on the outside of the bucket and i guess you know as i look at digital discipleship stuff and not criticizing them because i once again it's just another iteration of the challenge is that a lot of the stuff i read about do this do that do this do that is exactly the same as what i was reading for church growth movement not a bad thing as long as we don't leave it at people's engagement as a commodity and then wonder why they disengaged for another commodity. Yeah. Well, it's like, you know, the, and, you know, obviously we're talking about this on a podcast, like we are <laughs> living, you know, but yeah, I mean, part of us even starting this was to sort of move a little bit beyond stuff we could do in church and to help, you know, make more pathways for discipleship. But even with the podcast at some stages, it was really for us to get distracted. We, we even, got distracted at some points just by numbers because we just have to get more numbers. We need to do this and then we'll get more people. But then it wasn't, we needed to constantly come back and think, well, it's not necessarily about how many views we get, but it's more about like, are the people viewing and engaging with what we're doing? Is it actually leading them closer to Jesus? Is it leading closer to life transformation? Is it giving them helpful tools in their everyday? Mm. And so, so it's qualitative rather than quantitative yeah, and, and only. Grow. Yeah. Which is, yeah. It's challenging. And I, I mean, I like to think people have grown as a result of what we've been doing here and we've grown as a result of doing it, which has been great for us, purely selfish, you know, but yeah, no, I'm, this is great. So let's, let's dive in then. I mean, we've already, we've started with, let's just go for it. So part one of your thesis was how consumerism is affecting the church. Well, actually, part one of the thesis was oh, just sorry. establishing what consumerism actually is. Oh, and, that's good. Let's do that. And so so the part one was just talking about, hey, here's what consumerism is. Here's what it isn't. This is what advanced consumerism looks like. And because for some people, they look at consumerism and it's just, here's the, it's a bad thing. It's, you know, it's the product of advanced capitalism and class-based systems and down with the Western system and consumerism <laughs> needs to go. Yep. There's that, which intriguingly consumerism can commodify for its own ends. That's the beauty of consumerism. It doesn't have any underlying meta-narrative apart from choice. And so it'll take anti-consumerism and turn it into a consumer lens. And so pretty soon the down with capitalism, you know, is signed up by Sony and they've got logos and CDs and products and T-shirts. And pretty soon anti-consumerism can be commodified. That's the beauty of consumerism because it'll take anti-consumerism, it'll take Christianity, it'll take Buddhism, it'll take Buddhism, which is very much about giving away. And there's a whole movement of Buddhists saying, hey, the Western culture has taken us and commodified us. It'll take any system for its commodifiable ends, which is quite intriguing. So consumerism, or we consumerism also breeds incredible innovation. And there's now, lots of innovation in consumerism. There's lots of ways of thinking about engagement in consumerism. And we have consumerism to thank for our healthcare systems and our things we like about our society. And so trying to establish that consumerism is not just simply bad and consumerism has lots of great, beautiful things about it. And so the first part of my thesis, just working through what consumerism, I end up saying, hey, consumerism is our attachment to what we don't own yet and or the experience we haven't had yet and where your hope and identity and desire fit in that context so because often we've gone consumerism is what i own 
It's not what you own. In fact, if you loved what you owned, you'd be less likely to be consumer driven because you'd actually value the product you had and not be so attracted to the new version of it or not be so disappointed that it's now out of date. So consumerism isn't about loving what you have. In fact, love what you have more so you don't discard it so easily. Consumerism is when you have your identity, your hope and desire tied up in what you don't own yet. And so that's, I spent the first part working through what that is. Obviously, because hope and desire play in that game, that's also the spot where, as as you know, Christians, as as pastors, we're playing with the same stuff. We're playing with the same material of hope and desire. And so advertising takes the very same thing that you and I are trying to work with, hope and desire, and commodifies it. And that's the big challenge with our church members and us, because at any given moment, your church members at this very second are getting messages everywhere from the back of the bus, from the telephone, from their screens, telling them that they're not enough, they don't have enough, that something's not right with them. And we tell them the same thing, something's not right with you. But then the answer is given that this product is going to solve the problem. And so they're getting that message all the time. You and I are getting that message all the time. And so therefore, we're so easily able to take on that message that the better version of me is in this. And so hope and desire get get squashed into commodity and and you and I are then trying to have them put their hope and desire somewhere else. So that's the challenge. Now, keep in mind that consumerism isn't a new idea. It's just the current iteration of selfishness. Consumerism is a, a way of a society institutionalized selfishness. And selfishness has always been the problem. And Paul, you know, back in Romans 12, where he says, you know, we get dragged down to this society's level of maturity, that we get conformed to the pattern of this world. It's always been the challenge. So it's not as if consumerism is a new challenge. Being conformed to the pattern of this world has always been the challenge. And at the moment, it's expressed in consumer grids and consumer constructs, which is where I get excited about. Yeah, wow. That's just opened all that up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, even just in that, just, just reiterating that definition, it's the, so the, our attachment to what we what don't we have. What we don't own yet. So how much of your yet. identity, your hope and desire is tied up mm. in what you don't own yet. So you can get people who might have a lot of possessions, keeping in mind on a worldwide scale, all of us in Australia are ridiculously wealthy, even the ones who, you know, we say are below the poverty line on a worldwide scale, ridiculously wealthy. Keeping in mind that you can get people who have a lot of stuff and score low on consumerism because their attachment is not in what they don't own yet. Or you can get people who don't have much but score high on consumerism because, once again, they think the better version of themselves is if I can get that stuff. And so it's not so much about what I own as what I don't own yet and how much of my identity and attachment is tied up in that. Mm. What's the relationship between consumerism and other the other forms in which we create our identity? Because it feels like you could extrapolate that out as potential, whether it's academic potential or it's, I don't know, fitness potential or achieving a certain position at the company or having a certain amount of kids. Are they are those sorts of desires, those hopes, dreams for the future, do they fit under the consumerism umbrella or are they different? They they can do. They don't necessarily have to, but they can do. This is why consumerism, consumerism is just the pool we're swimming in, because it can take any of those aspects and and commodify. It can take anything, it can create dysfunctions that we never knew existed and tell us 
that we need this to fix that. It can commodify, you know, family values. It can commodify community. And you end up with these pseudo communities. It commodifies health and fitness. And you mentioned health and fitness, that it's that's probably the most commodified area of, of our culture at the moment is that we've commodified health. Why? This is going down a rabbit hole, but why? Because consumer consumerism is about death avoidance. In consumerism, you don't want to face death because when you're death, you get consumed, you don't consume. This is why in consumer culture, in consumer culture, we we put the emphasis on young people. Some cultures value old people because they know the story. Consumer culture values young people and values youth. And that's why we give you products and operations to try and keep people young. And, you know, that's why, you know, you've got, you know, the 40 is the new 30 and 50 is the new 30 and 60 is the new 30. And Madonna's trying to teach us that 70 is the new 30. And so, because we want to stay young, health gives us that ability to supposedly avoid death. Now you can be doing your health and fitness for all kinds of reasons. And as Adventists, we think health and fitness because our body's a temple of God, we're going to glorify God. Or you could be doing it for very consumable reasons in that, hey, I, I want to be this brand. And you do create your own own brand and, and consumerism teaches how to create our own brand or brands multiple because the as I say, consumerism's only value is choice. It doesn't want to get fixed. It doesn't want to get fixed to one identity. It doesn't want to get fixed to one product. It wants endless choice. And we hate fixity and consumerism. That's why church members don't want to be fixed onto a roster because they want to keep all the options open. We live in a culture that doesn't even want to fix, um, you know, gender or what. It, it just wants to keep the choices endlessly and open. And that's that's consumer, consumerism's big narrative. Even though it destroys choice in the process, but that's a whole nother track. Mm. And I suppose very cynically as well, the longer we live, the more we have the opportunity to consume product or brand and <laughs> the longer we're on the hook. <laughs> yeah. And and consumerism teaches us the ability to, to be different people at different stages and at different points, even in the same day. Once upon a time, you know, we lived in the agrarian cultures where you were known who you were and your family was known and the story was known. Consumerism has taught us how to separate a product from a story we don't want to know the story of our Nike shoes. We really don't want to know that. That's a, often a sad story. So we can separate the product from the story, but then we do that with people and ourselves. We separate. We don't have this big overriding story we're creating. We're creating mini brands in the mini moments, which has implications for when you're preaching because you can be preaching. It can be treated as a commodity. It can be treated as an experience. You might get a person who's moved to tears because they've treated it as the experience, but then they've walked out of there and by that night, they're doing something totally different to what they heard that morning because it doesn't have to connect. It doesn't have to make sense. You're in that moment, you're consuming in that moment and you have a category for how you consume that product. And then you have a category for how you consume another product, even if they don't, if they're not internally consistent, because that's not an issue in consumerism. Wow, man. Yeah. This is making a lot more sense. <laughs> so, I mean, Okay, this is so. Would you say this is how it's affecting churches in this way, or I mean, I'm sure there's lots of ways. It impacts churches in all kinds of ways, but this is where the challenge is because church presents as a brand, and it needs to to in, to have consumers. But we're so much in the consumer grid that we end up treating church as a product. We treat worship services as a product. No, it's our ability to to compare a worship service to lots of others and and what's in it for me is people are taught how to do that from young. They're already taught how to compare, how to commodify church. But then 
then Christianity itself presents itself as a commodity. And so it also just becomes another life choice. And so in consumerism, it's about what I'm constructing. And that's probably the biggest challenge is that when you think of a denomination, for instance, the individuality of consumerism challenges that because it's, hey, I'll believe this, but I'll believe that. And I'll take this and I'll take what Josh preached last week, but I'll take what Oprah says next week. And I'll take this little bit from there and I'll take this little, and it doesn't have to be internally consistent. And so therefore everyone puts together their own little construct and you hear people talk about my truth. Now that's a sentence you never used to hear previously. Previous generations didn't know about that sentence that, Hey, this is my truth and I'm going to live my truth and you can live your truth. And, and I will construct, I'll construct my own picture of who God is or whatever the case. And so the individualism, individualism of consumerism is probably the biggest challenge to what it is to be a community where consumerism goes up community goes down that's just entirely how it works a guy called oliver james not jamie oliver he makes food oliver james writes books about consumerism and oliver james his book he studies societies around the planet and he's has a measure for consumerism and as the consumer measure goes up he also has a measure for relationships and that goes down and so that's also the challenge for the church because the church's community consumerism is pseudo-community or anti-community. The opposite to consumerism is not anti-consumerism. The opposite of consumerism is community because it's relationship with God, relationship with people. So that's that's the challenge because church is essentially community. Consumerism destroys community. So wait, how I'm curious about that. How does consumerism destroy community? And maybe I am just a total product of like advertisement, you know, but I mean, like you see like a lot of consumerism bases itself around like, you know, becoming part of this community. An exclusive group perhaps. Kind of, but like, you know, for example, I'm just trying to think of like, I'm just trying to think of like a group, a group, like, you know, people like Apple products. And so they bond over having Mm. community of being like, oh yeah, I'm an Apple, I'm an Apple guy. I'm an Apple user. You know what I mean? Or I don't know. What's another example? Oh, like, you know, I'm a, I'm a Toyota driver. I'm part of a rugged group of individuals who gets outdoors and or Subaru or whatever. And you can brand your identity easily that way. And consumerism will help you say, if you want this brand, and that's why the brands of our clothes are on the outside, not just on the tags anymore, because that brand is, this is where I identify. Look at you, Mr. Under Armour over here. I am Mr. Under Armour. I'm my sub- brand is on the inside this time. I'll have you know. And so, <laughs> not, not that I, in my, my PhD includes a case study of Lorna Jane. Okay. Lorna Jane oh, nice. exercise clothing. Nothing against this, probably good product. But Lorna Jane says, I don't sell exercise clothing. I sell a philosophy. And she actually says that. And her catalogs are full of references to spirituality, whether that be Christian references sometimes or sometimes it's Buddhist references. And so she says, I sell a philosophy. And she says, I sell a community. So you join the Lorna Jane community. She writes about it. Every catalog is the Lorna Jane community. And this is what Zygmunt Bauman, a sociologist who's written a lot about this stuff, says is pseudo-community. And so that's the challenge. So go back to the question, Josh, and I'm going to oversimplify this bit. But in consumerism, this grid, the time equals money, money equals things, things equal happiness. So in consumerism, the goal is happiness, okay? And America has enshrined that as, you know, you've got a right to happiness, have we? Joy and happiness are very different, but that's a different sermon. So time equals money, money equals things, things equal happiness. That's what we've been taught. If I had these things, then I'd be happy. If you won lotto, you know, you'd be happy. Even though there's a lot of studies that show that people who win lotto have a spike in happiness and then are more unhappy. But anyway, so if that grid 
whatever takes my time takes my money, which takes my things, which takes my happiness. So when I ask you for your time, and we don't articulate it this, and I'm oversimplifying, and it's an overgeneralization that oversimplifies to but the grid we're working by, and Tim Castor, a psychologist, says we all work by this grid to a certain extent. So when you take my time, what are you taking? My money. Yeah, which is taking my? Things. Which is taking my? Happiness. Yeah. You ask me for my time, you're taking my happiness. So therefore, anything that takes my time takes my happiness. We don't often think it through it this way. So when the nominating committee rings me up and asks me to serve at church, what are they taking? Oh, you, you're trying to steal my happiness Whoa. away, man. I steal my happiness. Yeah. When my neighbor wants me to help and do something neighborly, what are they taking? My happiness. When anyone asks me to commit to anything, they're asking for my happiness. And so, therefore, if this is this underlying grid that Tim Kasser establishes, if this is the grid we're working from, then consumerism, this whole time equals money, money equals things, things equal happiness grid, it oversimplifies the problem but explains it that – my marriage takes my mm. money. Wow. I take my happiness because whatever I'm investing my time into, and so therefore you don't have time to invest into relationships, into marriages, into parenting, into extended family. You don't have time to invest into visiting grandma. You don't have time into you know, to sit with your neighbours because all of that is underlined by this grid that is taking my happiness. So that's that's how it destroys community because there's an underlying grid that the very things that would deliver better senses of identity are the very things that in consumer grid are taking happiness because that's threatening my ability to get more stuff or experience something different. Wow. I need, I need a drink of water after that. That hit me. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. The other thing that's really sprung to mind for me, Brandon, is, you know, the potential for manipulation. And obviously every marketing agency in the world is, you know, doing all they can to sell you the product and all that, that is a given. But when I think about faith communities, there seems to be a fairly easy jump from embracing a consumeristic model to, well, I'm going to do all that I can. And maybe this is going to go back to the church growth movement doing all that I can in order to get the biggest congregation to raise the most money, to build the biggest building, to have the most impressive worship service. Are there certain things that you now look at through the lens of that's a bit manipulative or that's a consumeristic sort of model driving this behavior sort of thing? Not, I don't want you to name any names, but you know, you you see it everywhere, but, but to be fair, I see it my own self. And no, as Apostle Paul says, dialect dating the self. So I see it creeping as fingers are everywhere and including in, in, in my heart all the time that I find myself being attached to if I had this thing, if I had that thing, I just need that one. I find that in myself. And so, so it, yeah, it, it does reach in everywhere. But, and as I keep coming back to consumerism also breeds excellent things and innovation as well. So I, I don't want to just be the person that's Mr. Anti-Consumer. Don't want to overcomplicate stuff. But my thesis ends up establishing this reflexive participant consumer where there's reflexive aspects of being part of our culture that we don't get a lot of choice over, that it's just our reflex. And we reflexively respond in consumer ways because that's just how we're taught. Our culture is that. That's fine. The participating part is how much we get a choice into how we then let that shape our identity. And that's where the real challenge is, how much of 
do I let that shape my hope and my desire? And that's where it needs to have intentional thinking about the imagination that advertising sells me. They want it. They want to sell me. And and there's you can find whole journals on the spirituality of advertising and how they want to shift their brand into what they call the human spiritual zone, because you get attached to the transcendent. And if they can make their product have you feel like you're doing a better version of yourself through their product, that's what the aim is. And so therefore, as a church, we're given the same challenge of how do we give people a better imagination of what life is? And so how do we create this imagination beyond the now of consumerism? And we do have that better. And we do present that as a product. But then how do we engage that imagination to then have people look at how they participate in the culture? And they are going to present in consumable ways. And you are going to buy clothes. And you are going to have brands. But have people think through what that means for their identity, their hope and desire. And that's where, well, that's the last section of my thesis, looking at what's it look like for a church to be able to do that, accepting that consumer culture is here. We're not about to destroy that. But at the same time, how do we inform those choices? How do we inform consumer culture? And and then there's some wonderful things about Adventism that allow that to happen really well. Now, just coming back to the time equals money. On Sabbath, we say time doesn't equal money. We say, hey, Sabbath, you're not going to generate income. On Sabbath, you are going to take a break from advertising and from shopping and from being an employee or an employer. On Sabbath, you're going to take a break from the consumer culture. You are going to take a break from these things to experience what is a better imagination. And the better imagination is that kingdom imagination of relationships and serving and connectedness. And on the Sabbath, you know, we as Adventists, we emphasize this whole idea of creation. You know, in consumerism, where creation is often devalued, even though environmentalism is often getting commodified now. But as Adventists, we do have this space where we say, hey, let's take a break and consider how we impact the planet and what we're doing that either builds up or destroys what God's asked us to care for. So as Adventists, we have a lot of touch points. All through Adventist belief, there's a lot of things that are there that help us grow this imagination. And so that's, I think, the challenge is that now, the second part of my thesis is about how consumerism impacts church. Third part is what do we do to grow beyond that? Yeah. Can I just ask how, I'm just curious about how does consumerism, like, I mean, I don't know if you can answer this in a nutshell or if, <laughs> but how does consumerism devalue, was it creation or nature? Yeah. Because consumerism removes the end product from its story. So once upon a time, you know, if I lived in a little village and there was the person who made chairs, I knew where my chair came from. And my chair had a story because it was made from, you know, this family who have been making chairs for generations. And that was the chair maker. And he told his son how to make chairs and he told his daughter how to make chairs. And so this is the chair has a story. At the moment, you and I, all our products are removed from their story and they're removed and given a marketable story that we're given the story that advertisers want to give us of that product. And so, no, your Apple computer that you mentioned before, and I think different was their launching pad kind of thing that, hey, if you want to be a bit more innovative, if you want to be a bit more edgy, if you want to be more creative than these Dell users, then you have an Apple and you're you're a little more creative, a little more edgy, a little smarter, a little more innovative. And, and the brand has that that goes with it, okay? But you don't know the story of your computer. You don't know the story of the factory in China that's pumping out the bits and pieces for it. So you don't know the story of the product. That way, consumerism, and it's being addressed now through the environmental movement, but that way, consumerism removing us from their product also removed us from the resources that require for that product. 
And so we were able to trample our natural environment. We did rape and pillage the planet. We did just dig up here and dig up there and destroy here and and destroy our creation to get the product that we didn't have to know the start of the story for. And Interesting. so as products are removed from their story, it does end up devaluing where that story starts. And with most products, the story does start with creation. There's a whole lot of, there's a whole Sabbath movement. Now, keep in mind, Sabbath can also be commodified and the whole well-being movement is commodifying the Sabbath to try and say, if you have a Sabbath, you're going to be more productive for the rest of the week, which is a consumer story. So Sabbath can also be commodified, but there's this whole other Sabbath movement saying, hey, the Sabbath, if we gave creation a break from just using it and instead looked after it, then how much better would creation be? And there's all, you can read all kinds of reports on how the planet would be healthier you know, if we gave it a break and as Adventists, we've already give ourselves a break and the commandments remind us, give your animals a break. Everyone gets a break. And so we have a way to inform that and care for creation. As I say, creation care is becoming more popular at the moment and commodified at the moment. But as Adventists, we've always thought we're supposed to care for creation. And so there's a lot of things of in Adventism that we can either commodify health being one of them. We can either go through the commodified way of health, or we can say health exists for this bigger imagination. So there's a whole lot of touch points, but yeah, the creation care is something Adventists should incredibly be incredibly passionate about, but that's something that does get devalued in consumer culture. Something that I, I think I, I keep hearing you say, and please rephrase this if there's a better way to put this, but it, almost feels like you're saying that consumerism for better or for worse, it's just a necessary evil. It's a function of our society, the Western post-capitalist society that we live in. We have to live with it. We can't really escape it. And so if that's true, how can we as people of faith and as, you know, potentially leaders in church communities together, I guess, reckon with that and then work out how do we practice our faith in a wholesome and beneficial, healthy way, knowing that we cannot escape this thing. We can become yeah. Amish. No, probably not. That's and, true. And that's one of the responses. You can, <laughs> Amish, you can go and start a commune up in Byron Bay. You can do all that. But it, it, it doesn't mean you're going to be salt and light. I think you're right, Jesse, that the bigger challenge is being aware of what it does to us. And as I say, it's always been the challenge in any culture. That's why Paul was like, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by renewing of your mind. He wasn't talking about consumerism, but he's certainly talking about an empire. And that's why my thesis goes into a whole lot of stuff on how consumerism becomes a false religion and how consumerism takes on religiosity and selling hope and desire. So it becomes a false religion. It becomes an empire it becomes an empire in itself. And so sure you, Paul was talking about, don't be conformed to the empire, but today let's say consumerism is the empire. Don't be conformed to it. You're part of it. You're going to live in the empire, but don't be conformed to it. One of the commandments that you no, know, the, the Sabbath commandment where I've taken you out of slavery for the, for the children of Israel, their total value was in how much they could produce. How many bricks can you produce for the Pharaoh? You and I get caught in the same thing. How much can we produce? Because consumerism is all about how much you can produce to keep the economy running. Sabbath takes us out of that and says you don't have to be a slave to production. You don't have to be a slave to the empire. And so if the empire is consumerism and if consumerism can be an iteration of false religion, then that takes you a whole lot of stuff in Revelation that we don't have to get to today. But 
there's lots of ways of viewing revelation through different grids of what's false religion, what's the empire, what's Babylon. It all ties in as far as at any given moment, there's always an empire. There's always a culture that's willing to conform us to that pattern. At the same time, you and I are called to point people, as Paul says, to be transformed by renewing their mind and have a different imagination and see a different way of being human. I guess the when we're talking about the church's response to consumerism, we've talked, I guess, a bit about there's theo- theology and mindset that can help us to not necessarily overcome it, but help us be aware of it and help combat it, I guess, in some ways. The, the practice of Sabbath can as well. And I love that. I just love that idea of like, is it Sabbath is resistance? Is that the... Mm. Sabbath is Walter Brueggemann. Yeah, Yeah, Walter Brueggemann. That's the culture of now. Yeah, yeah, it's super interesting. Are there any other ways you see that the church can respond and help people? Because I imagine there's probably some people listening who are like, oh my goodness, my whole life is consumerism. I'm doomed. You know, what do I do? Like, what do I do for the other six days a week? I I guess, yeah. Are are there any other ways the church or even just following Jesus, how else does that help somebody caught in the empire of consumerism? So I'm going to go on two levels. Level number one is the basic, hey, how do we understand advertising? How are we able to see through it? You know, with my kids, and I know that Hills Adventist College, there was a teacher there who was doing a whole unit on consumerism with kids on what's advertising trying to do to you? How do you see through it? I remember one of my kids one time you know, wanted a Nintendo product and said, Dad, consumerism's got to me. I really do need this to be happy. And, and I thought, well, at least they know what process got to them for them to think that that product was going to make them happy. So part of it's understanding this is what consumerism is. This is what advertising is. This is the culture that we're in, being able to read the culture. That's part of it. The deeper, bigger challenge is creating a bigger imagination. Because consumerism is simply putting your hope and desire in the imagination of product. What's it look like to create that bigger imagination? And as a church, we get to be able to do that. We get to be able to say, there's a bigger thing going on. It's the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, there's a totally different way of being human, where you serve more than you are served, where it's not about demanding my rights, but investing my life into the others, where there's this whole where community really matters and everyone is God's kid and it doesn't matter you know what background that we're all God's kids. There's a totally different way of seeing the world. And that's what Jesus was all about. In Jesus, we have the bigger imagination. And so if we're teaching and modeling and and drawing people that big imagination, now can you have a commodified Jesus? Certainly. And everywhere you look, you get commodified Jesus. But what about if Jesus' bigger imagination that goes beyond the culture to a new kingdom culture? If that's what we model, if that's what we teach, and if that's what we preach, and so we have people knowing why we're doing this because there's a bigger, bigger thing going on, and consumer, yeah, all through there's, there's as I say, there's tentacles are everywhere, so there's as many ways to address it as there are ways of being imaginative on how do we do this. There's a whole lot of research that people who are exposed to death are less likely to be consumer driven. There's research and Adventist guy did a whole lot of research on kids who served in old age homes were less likely to develop a consumer attachment when they're later in life because they saw the cycle of life. Consumerism wants to target market and say, you listen to this and you do that. And that's what your generation is. Whereas when you see there's a big cycle of life in Europe, they're starting death cafes where they get together and talk about death because consumerism is death avoidant. And so by seeing the reality of life, it forces you beyond what you think matters to what really matters. So part of it is thinking, 
intergenerational community addresses consumerism. So where you target market that so often falls into consumer grids, intergenerational community means that I don't get all I want and there's people sitting with me who see the world differently and together we're going to form a community that isn't about me, that's beyond me. So there's there's lots of little tentacles and lots of ways lots of ways to address it. Mark Sayers wrote a really interesting book where he talks about how previous cultures were sex repressed and death was in your face because they had the plague and people were dying everywhere in front of you and and death was here, but you repressed sex. And so if you wanted to be deviant, you expressed yourself through that sort of sexual deviance. He says our culture, consumer culture, has commodified sex. So sex is everywhere. And death is what we try and hide now. And so death is what you try and put away. And old age homes aren't promoted about this is no, they're promoted by the man with the white teeth. He could still swing a golf club and 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 we avoid death. And so he says, if you want to express your deviance to society now, you get, you know, you do gothic things and you try and express death themes, and which is really quite intriguing to think, you know, where that's all up to. As a church, we do preach there's a big imagination going on and death's not the end. And I think, I think we just need to keep coming back to what's this kingdom culture look like? What's this greater imagination? What does hope and desire really look like when they're placed in the transcendent over the message you're going to get 3,000 times a day to put them in product? Yeah, wow. And even, I guess, just the basic of like story of Jesus, that death is death is not the end. Death has no sting in the life of Jesus. And I think maybe maybe part of the consumerism narrative, like saying it's avoiding death because it's a huge fear of of death and that what you're saying is like at that stage you are consumed like you're not and so i guess if you come to the realization and see the hope you have in jesus that death has no sting even that side of it yep. wouldn't affect you in the same way and i don't want to go a catholic on this point but <laughs> the idea of consuming jesus because he wants to he wants us to consume him to work through us right and so mm. you know the bread and the wine at communion i'm not saying it turns yeah. into the body of christ I'm not saying that's what happens. Yeah, I'm the vine, you are the branches, you yeah, know, sort of thing. So when you take on the, the bread and the wine and you, you consume Jesus, he says, come to my table, come and have living water from me, come and consume my living water, come and consume my mm. bread. It, it's a, you're still consuming, but you're consuming with totally different ends in mind. Right. Wow. It's, like, it's like what Jesus says to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, you know, if you drink from me, you will never thirst again. And I guess that's, anti, that's almost anti-consumerism, that you'll yeah. never have to drink ever again. But you're gonna you're gonna consume, but you're gonna consume me. I am the bread, I am the life, I am the water. So so you're gonna consume, but consume with what motives and what ends in mind. Yeah, wow. So good. Look, we are we we are kind of starting to wrap up. I don't want to, because this is <laughs> I feel like there's like a million little things we look at, but I'm I'm curious about, I guess, so what are what are some more practical I don't know. Do you have like some practical ways to help people maybe see the way ways consumerism, consumerism, I guess, what, what how am I trying to word this? Like practical ways that people can see how consumerism is affecting them and how to, I guess, be more mindful of it and resist. 
Yeah, I don't have enough resistors away, but just to acknowledge it, like what are some practical, yeah. like should we be keeping a consumerism journal or something? I don't know. And, and resist is partly partly the right word for it. So so resist is, and, and that's going to look different for different people. For some people, you know, resistance is the whole simplify movement, mm. which is which is fine in itself, but which, as a, this is the problem. As I say, any consumer resistance can be commodified. And so right. the whole simple living movement, you know, the Marie Kondo stuff where it's like, does this bring you joy? If not, chuck it out type stuff. That ends up being consumable. In fact, she's got loads of products she sells as out of that anti-consumerism, simplified living thing. And so, but for some people, you know, they might think, can I get by with less? That might be some way of, of trying to address it, keeping in mind that that's not the total endpoint of it because it's also my attachment to what I don't own yet. Clive Hamilton and Richard Dennis, or Richard Dennis particularly, in his book on anti-consumerism, he's an Australian academic, but he's saying that, hey, consumerism is addressed by materialism, where if we actually valued material, where it came from, what it is, and valued my things, I'm not just going to discard. I'm going to think, what have I consumed? Why have I consumed it? And how am I going to have this impact the planet the least way possible? So there's little things like that 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 we can think, what am I consuming? How am I consuming? The messages I'm getting, you know, what consumer messages have I been given today? Just thinking through why do I want what I want? You know, I why do I want to buy that next thing? And what's that next thing going to be? It's not necessarily a bad thing, but thinking through why am I doing this? And the bigger challenge is that whole what am I doing? And, and Jesse, you came back to it before with the vine and the branches. What am I doing that connects me to the vine? Because really the where consumerism is really addressed is in who God is and our picture of God, because we can either make a consumable God who's going to give us more products and prosperity gospel often goes down that track that it, it makes a God who fits into consumerism beautifully. Cause I don't have to address my consumerism. I'm just going to have a God who's going to give me more to consume or you know, the God who's with us, who's with us in all our choices and a God who promises that I'll be with you whether you've got lots or little or whatever the case, I'm going to be with you in that. And I'm going to be with you in your choices of what you consume. I'm going to be with you in your choices of when you go shopping, whatever it is, the with God and with God changes consumerism because with takes time and time coming back to that first problem of consumerism. Time is one thing busy rushed people don't have. And so when we have a with picture of God, then that addresses the very heart of consumerism. So it, at the very basis, it's it's reassessing who God is, your picture of God and a with God and taking time to grow with addresses the, the consumer problem. At It's more, you can, as I say, you can find lots of ways to address consumerism that lots of people will have, but at its very heart, consumerism is about the transcendent. Consumerism is about hope and desire. That's the very area that we say hope and desire and the transcendence is in God. and so. At the very heart, consumerism is a, an issue of spirituality rather than an issue of capitalism or production. Yeah. I, I, I've i noticed, like, I mean, I've by no means mastered consumerism in my life, but I've, like, in this past year and a bit, oh, maybe year, past year, I've been working a lot on my personal prayer life, and maybe we'll do an episode on this in the future, but part of it has been, like, at the end of every day, I'm trying to make this time of like prayer of gratitude each day. And that's just the focus of that prayer. Like at the end of the day, even just on my drive home, thinking through all the things I'm grateful for in my life. Yeah. That, and to be honest, I've actually noticed a shift in myself about like, I feel like I want less things because I'm more grateful for the things 
I already have. But you have. It's at that time just spending God and like spending that time with God every day and just looking back and saying, you know what, I'm grateful this happened. I'm grateful for this. I'm grateful like even just like things that I've already thanked him for a hundred times and just doing it over and over again. And I have found like, like by, by no means I've mastered, I have I mastered it. I see ads for things. I'm like, oh, I would be happy with it. You know, but I'm just thinking, I think it has made a, a difference. I don't yeah. know. So, yeah. I, I think you're right. And I think that's where the challenge is, is connecting to the vine with that greater imagination and that that greater imagination addresses consumerism rather than say, let's fight consumerism. It's let's grow a greater imagination and asking yourself those questions about why I want this or why I don't want that, or who have I treated as the commodity today? Because we treat people as commodities. We turn people into things. Pornography is the ultimate example of turning people into commodity, but who have I treated people as a commodity today? What have I done today that reflect on what messages I've taken on from our culture or how I've engaged in culture as I say, you're going to be a consumer. It's what outcomes and motives you do that with. Mm. Yeah. No, well, look, Thank you, Brandon. I've really enjoyed our time together today. I know that it's been immensely helpful for me. and I know that it's going to be immensely helpful for all of our listeners. At the risk of further being a consumer, have you published your PhD thesis? Can, can people you know read it, buy it? You can find my, my PhD for free if you just search on it online. Um, it's at Charles Sturt University. It's available in their library. Yes, I am going to, I am working on a more consumable version of it. So there will be a consumable version that's a book and some talks and things. But yeah, if you Google Brendan Pratt consumerism, you'll find some talks on consumerism that, that I've done along the way. But the more consumable version is coming. Fantastic. Awesome. Looking forward to it. Yeah, well, I have to make sure we definitely get it and and share it around because it'll be really good. Like this has been so helpful and I'm sure there's so much more we could talk about, but yeah, just, yeah. So thank you so much for making the time. Hey, look, if anybody has anything, I don't know, is there a best way to like contact you if people are interested in learning more as well? I guess just my email, Brendan Pratt at adventist.org.au and I've got stuff I can send that, you know, if they're saying, hey, I'm a parent, I want to know how to address consumerism with our children or what have you got that's addressing consumerism for young people or for myself or, you know, I'm teaching a Sabbath school class. If you've got resources for consumerism, I'll, I've got all that kind of stuff sitting on my computer. I can just click reply and off we go. Awesome. Awesome. Great. Well, hey, guys, take advantage of that. Sounds like a really good resource. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, everybody. It's a pleasure. You are awesome. Stay awesome and stop consuming. I don't know. <laughs> that is Consume Josh. the right motives. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That is Josh, Jesse and Brendan out. Out.